0: now, this is an episode from the Research in Action mini series, where I interview a researcher from the Mathematics Education Centre at Loughborough University about their chosen area of interest and the implications for maths teaching and learning. But just before we dive into today's episode, a quick word from our lovely sponsors of this series. Cue the fancy music! This for University mini-series of podcasts is kindly supported by Oxford Revise GCSE Maths. The Oxford Revision Series is designed to be straightforward, visual and accessible to ease the stress of revision. Something that's perhaps needed more so this academic year than ever before. Now, I love the way these guides are set out. You've got one topic per page, meaning students can just dip in and get cracking. You've got nine to one grades on every question so students can monitor their progress. And you've got loads of lovely diagrams and visual memory tips to help boost retention. My favourite bits though are the strive for five and climb to nine pages in the foundation and higher books because they provide dedicated support for the problem areas identified in examiner's reports. Now you can save 50%, yep, 50% on Oxford Revised GCSE Maths today with the revision guide and workbook at just £2.50 each. Simply visit Oxford's website at oxfordsecondary.com forward slash Oxford Revised GCSE Maths and there's a link to that in the show notes page or speak to your educational consultant who can tell you more. Today's episode of the podcast, I was lucky enough to speak to Corbinian Moller. Corbinian is Professor of Mathematical Cognition at the Centre of Mathematical Cognition at Loughborough University. He studied psychology at the RWTH Aachen University and the University of Dundee. Subsequently, he pursued his PhD at the Paris Laudon University in Salzburg, Austria, and the Erbehand Karls University in Turbingen. Ter- oh, I'm having a nightmare with some of these names. From December 2012 to April 2020, Corbinian headed the junior research group Neurocognitive Plasticity at the Leibniz Institute for Wisermieden. Oh dearie me, what are you doing to me here? Additionally, he was professor for Applied Learning and Knowledge Psychology at the University of Turbingen. His research interests focus on the cognitive and neural underpinnings of numerical competencies. I need a drink after that intro. Anyway, this was a cracking conversation. We spoke about three things in the main. Firstly, fingers. Yep, fingers and their role in early mathematical development. And then moving on from that, manipulatives. And then finally, game-based apps. Just why are children seemingly happy to spend hours trying and failing on Call of Duty, but not quite so happy putting the same amount of effort into their lovely quadratic homework? I'll be back at the end with a few things that I've been thinking about since speaking to Corbinian, but for now, let's get cracking. Okay, Corbinian, so we start the show as we always do with your math speed dating questions. So question number one, what is your favourite number and why?
1: um i'm sorry i i don't think that i really have a favorite number so if, if they would have to choose one it is probably 635 because this is uh like the the serious number serial number of a of my favorite car <laughs> the bmw c6 uh, series um from from the 80s um an old car and i i have it like I bought it 20 years ago and it uh, accompanied me uh, through through my life since then, but it's not a favorite number, but it's the
0: most common number, I think. (laughs) It's a good enough reason. I like it. I like it. Well, question number two then, What, what was your favorite topic in maths as a student?
1: Um, As a student, this also was something that I had to think about, but it was statistics, actually. So um, relative frequency and stuff. I I cannot really tell why, but I I really liked it. So it it, uh, reminded me of, or I had the impression that there were lots of um, everyday life situations where this might be
0: useful. It's it's really interesting, this. Um, so we, we've done over 100 episodes on this podcast, and very rarely do you get people saying that their favorite topic was statistics. But I think that's three out of the four interviews I've done today, or three out of the five, sorry, have said statistics for their favorite. So Re- it must, must be something to do with researchers and statistics, I think. <laughs> yeah, researchers and math, probably. Exactly, exactly. Well, uh, question number three, then. What job would you like to do if you weren't involved in research and education? Yeah
1: so if if it wouldn't be research and education i think my my favorite job would be research and development department in the, in industry um developing cars or ergonomics for whatever i think yeah this is do
0: doing another kind of research and development Got it. Got it. Fantastic. Um, well, I've been asking all um, my guests, in just to give a bit of an, an outline of, of their career. So where it all started for you and, and how you got to where you are today. So can you just talk us through that briefly, please?
1: Thanks a lot. So, yeah, basically, I, I started uh, psychology and uh, I then moved to a university where uh, the focus was on organizational and industrial psychology. So this was the time when I was, like, thinking that you can earn a lot of money with psychology. Um, <laughs> In in the end, it didn't really work out, but, um, so I, I joined a a research group in, at Aachen University in Germany back that time, um, which was researching, doing research on on number processing. And, um, yes, I started as a research assistant. Then I moved to Salzburg because I was asked to do a a PhD, um, by, by one of the former members of this group. And then, Came to Tübingen because my, my professor moved to Tübingen two years after joining Salzburg. And yeah, then did, did my PhD on numerical cognition on, on actually on um, the place value system uh, of the Arabic number system um, in Tübingen in 2010. And then got the professorship at Tübingen University in 2012. And yeah, finally, after eight years in Tübingen, joined LoveBro.
0: Fantastic, superb! And before we dive into your chosen area of research, I'm, I'm also asking all my guests just to pick out a favourite failure. So perhaps a moment either from your research or your general professional life that didn't go according to plan, and crucially, what did you learn from the experience? Uh, yeah, so I, I once
1: applied for a, for a very big grant, and um, where it, uh, the, the the most necessary step was to persuade your university that. It will fund you in the the case that you will get this external funding. Um, And uh, success rates were very high. So I was quite confident that this would work, but it didn't work in the end. (laughs) Um, And this was, it was disappointing. It was like, yeah, it it didn't feel good. But in the end, what I learned from this is that um, you cannot take something for granted yeah even if it looks very good, very nice, and very promising, um it still can go wrong and um in the end, this was also part of the journey that brought me to Lafra and um to c m c and therefore I think it turned out well in the end.
0: that's a very positive favorite failure i I like that one very good okay well let's turn our attention then to your chosen area of research so what what are we going to be talking about today corbinian
1: uh we will be talking about um figures the use of fingers for counting for initial calculations and um how this might be beneficial for numerical development in general
0: Oh, wow. Okay. This, this is fascinating. Now, as I've been saying quite a lot today, this is something I know very, very little about. So I'm I'm all ears here, Corbinin. So first off, what, what, what attracted you to, to that area?
1: So basically, it was back in Tübingen and then we we, did, we had done some research on, on the embodiment idea of numbers. So how the body, physical experiences can help you um, getting a grasp on numbers, literally speaking. Um, and then there was this opportunity to uh, do research in a graduate school together with colleagues from the University of Education, um, and we we met with some colleagues from math education, and it was it we we, we had a vital debate on the body and most obviously fingers, <laughs> <laughs> uh, as is an embodied instance of, of numerical cognition and. They were like, ah, no, you cannot do this, and and you need to um, like get children to um, get away from fingers, move away from using their fingers, very very fast, and and we were like, no. So there is neuropsychological psychological evidence that shows that the, the opposite, that it should be or seems to be beneficial, and this was a fascinating discussion, and and luckily the the, the colleague from art education, she was um, Laura Martinez, she was. Um, happy with doing a project together and evaluating this in more detail and this is where it all started.
0: Wow Um, this interests me greatly this Um, as I have mentioned to to, uh, several of your colleagues this morning um, my my little boy Isaac he's he's 20 months old at the moment and I'm I'm starting to think about how I'm going to introduce him to, to number and so on and fingers is is a really interesting one because my instinct as a secondary school teacher is that yeah as you alluded to there it's it's not a good idea to be counting on your fingers we need to move away from that as quickly as possible to start doing things either in our head or on paper so it interests me that perhaps fingers have a bigger role to play than, than i might have imagined so can you talk us talk us through the, the, um, some of your studies uh, Corbin and into this and and what what did you how did you conduct the research and what did you find out yeah, so we did different kinds of studies. So there,
1: most of the evidence that uh, there is uh, that supports the notion that fingers are a beneficial tool for for developing numerical skills comes is correlational. Yeah? So I'm um, showing that um, finger sensory skills, for instance, finger gnosis, so the ability to, to differentiate your fingers. Right? So imagine I, I touch one of your fingers with, with your eyes closed and then you have to... To say which finger I touched. This is mm. a very easy task for, 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 adults, but it's quite challenging for, for kindergarten children. And, um, it's, it was found that, um, the disability finger gnosis is, um, associated with concurrent, and numerical skills, but also predictive of future numerical skills. So for initial calculations in first grade, second grade, for instance. Um, and um, and also there is evidence from, from Australia, but basically from all over the world, that shows that children who use their fingers um, proficiently to count early on in kindergarten, that these will also be the more um, proficient ones in, in early mathematics in school. So this is correlational, and um, one one approach that we took was like, okay, we, we want to get away from this correlational evidence, and um, mm. let's let's do a training study, an intervention study, to, to make to be able to to draw causal conclusions. And this is what we did in this in this um, graduate school in this project with the colleagues from our education. We we developed a, a training an intervention, um, eighteen sessions. Um, spread of the entire first year of school in, in in germany um and like we had uh we realized different um, content for the session so we also we, we started with finger gnosis which i briefly described earlier um we we had some sessions on finger counting but um as the colleagues from Martha education and um, were quite how do you say this like hesitant about the counting aspect and mm-hmm. using fingers. So we try to move away from the counting quite fast and to come to like um, showing the thumb, the index finger and the middle finger simultaneously for three and not successively, yeah? not counting yes. up to three, but showing it at once. Um, uh, uh, yes, we also had something that was called um, number bingo. Which we had. uh, So we we displayed uh, symbolic numbers, stock patterns, but also finger patterns on on cards, and children had to get together the the matching cards. Um, We also introduced um, initial calculations using fingers, and for instance, addition and subtraction. This, This can be easily. So the concept of addition and subtraction can easily be conveyed by by using fingers. You stretching out another finger or um, clapping in. No, how do you say this in English? Um, um, yeah,
0: kind of like folding the finger yeah, away.
1: Yeah, folding in again. Um, this this nicely illustrates um, the concept of addition and subtraction, and also like um, that a number a big number can be decomposed into smaller numbers. This is also something that you can nicely show with your fingers. So five fingers at the hand, and like you can put it into a set of three and two, four and one. The thumb is one, and the, four, uh, the, the rest of the fingers is four. Something like this. And this is what we trained with children. It was embedded in a story um, with a, a number dragon that visited children at school, um, uh, and they really liked it. Um, Yes, and we had a pre-test, a post-test, and a follow-up test, so we tested children just after they started school. In and can grade. I just, sorry to interrupt
0: you, Corbyn, well, yeah. what age are these students, sorry?
1: Um, so, in Germany, the students uh, children start school at the age of about six years.
0: Right, okay, yeah. fantastic. So, six years, their first age of schooling, and sorry, I interrupted you, they're doing a pre-test, and, and yeah, sorry, if
1: yeah, just carry they, they took a pre-test uh, at the beginning of first grade, at about the age of six, and they um, yeah. So, um, we, we tested them on calculation abilities. We tested them on number line estimation, for instance, like uh, asking them, okay, imagine uh, there is a number line running from zero to 10. Where does the six goes on this number line? Um, and some, some other, uh, tasks that we did with them. And yeah, so we, we tested them again at the end of first grade after. We had um, yeah, 18 sessions of training with them, and these 18 sessions were like half an hour each, and they were integrated into their math instruction. So it was not something they got in addition to to math instruction, but it was part of their math hmm. instruction um, to keep this balanced um, across uh, the, the experimental group and the, and the control group of children that we had. Um we tested the same tasks at the end of uh, first grade and then uh, had another uh, follow-up test uh, in the middle of second grade, nine months after the end of the uh, intervention. And basically what we found is that the children in the, um, in the, in the experimental group, um, they benefited from the training. So it was not detrimental to them. Um, so uh, they, um, uh, they developed their calculation skills more strongly than did the children of the control group. Um, this was significantly. And um, we, interestingly, we, we found this, significant, this, this significantly more uh, strong, uh, more pronounced intervention effect um, for children of the figure training group um, for addition and subtraction. And, and, but we did not found it find it for um, number line estimation. And this is, I think this, this the differential result is, is important um, because if if we would just have found an, an improvement, a stronger improvement of these children in the, in the experimental group on all tasks assessed, you could easily argue, okay, so there was someone coming to their class from the outside. There was additional attention that they got. Yes. And this is why they improved more strongly. Um, but, we found it for addition subtraction, but not for number line estimation. And as I said, um, the concept of addition subtraction you can easily convey it using fingers. But the idea of a number line and where a number goes on the number line is, is much harder to 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 like um, convey using fingers. And therefore, it, for us, it made sense that we, we had this uh, effect for addition subtraction and not for number line estimation. Yeah? And, um, this, this differential effect is
0: important this is this is fascinating this um i'm i mean i'm not an expert in anything but one thing i'm certainly not an expert in is, is early years teaching as, as has been demonstrated on this podcast many times i my my, my question well one of my many questions to you Corbinian, is the the group that were not in the experimental group that were not yeah. being uh, had these 12 sessions how, how were they being introduced to addition and subtraction was it with some kind of manipulatives or was it quite abstract or did, did you get a sense of that what what the alternate approach was
1: yeah so so they they used um tokens for instance which is very common in german schools
0: um so they
1: had um tokens which they um had there there is like arrays of uh, five that um, uh, two of them are combined. So they have usually um, five blue tokens and um, five red tokens that they put into a specific array or can put there. And usually these are used to introduce um, the concept of addition and subtraction.
0: Ah, So it's interesting. So there was still kind of a a manipulative element, like a physical element for for, for the students to draw upon. And my my other question, when they did the post-test, the non-experimental group did they have access to those counters? So it, it wasn't like to do the addition and subtraction the, the tokens. Sorry, yeah. could, could they use them in the post test? Um, no, we did not allow any materials in the post test. I see, I see. So, so what's what's your what's your reasoning why fingers are so so powerful? Is it because they're just they're accessible, so students have always got them, so they can use them, or is there something? more special about fingers than there is about tokens, if that makes sense. Is it the fact that they're always around so students can access them and use them at any stage? Or is there something fundamentally different about fingers as a, as a physical object yeah. compared to say uh, tokens? Uh,
1: in my opinion, they are special. Fingers are special um, because it's it's part, they are part of your body. Yeah? And whenever you use fingers for counting or for, for whatever, um, you have this physical experience of touching something there's proprio receptive um, feedback that you get from using your fingers and um, this is in, in a sense i would argue in line with with the arguments of of em- embodied cognition so that you um, through physical interaction with uh, with with the world with the specific aspects of the world and, and using your body we are acquiring um, mental concepts and the association between fingers and numbers is a, a very prominent one in this embodied cognition um, community, um, and I, I share the the, the impression that um, because they are part of the body, because you use them, you can easily use them you can it's, you to, to manipulate things with your fingers and stuff like this. So this is is very helpful, and we. We, we recently had a, a publication in, in which we showed that um, you, you, it is possible to like um, describe how fingers can be supportive, can be beneficial for children on the three most basic level of numerical development. Um, for instance, it's a, it's a model by Krajewski and Schneider. And... Um, Say they they propose that counting so acquiring the counting sequence is the most basic level and followed up by a, a, an understanding of cardinalities so or the magnitude of numbers and then um, initial calculations composition decomposition of numbers and fingers can be helpful on, on all of these these aspects for instance um, in an in initial step in, in acquiring counting abilities children need to um, acquire the counting sequence, and they need to be aware that um, the, the, the sequence of words is stable. It's always the same number of uh, the same uh, the same order in which you spell um, in which you speak out um, number words. And fingers can be using your fingers can be helpful on, for this because you always count them in the say in the same order. Yeah, in, in Germany, front of them, I think also in the UK, you start with the thumb. The index finger, the ring, the middle finger, the ring finger, and so on. So the stable order is can be can be conveyed by the fingers. And the interesting thing, if you want to move up to, to the cardinality aspect, and um, when you count on your fingers, one, two, three, then with counting to three, you see the cardinality. You see the magnitude to which you have counted, because this is the number of fingers which is stretched out. Mm. And and this is therefore. Finger counting is also said to be to be um, cardinalized counting because it results in the cardinality of, of, of the number that you um, wanted to want to this, this display or want you to grasp. And also, I think I did the the example for the um, for the composition decomposition already, right? So you have five fingers on one hand, and you can say, okay, it's the thumb and four more fingers, or three fingers and two fingers. And therefore, numbers are very uh, hands are very handy if you want to <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um, to to, uh, um, to, to um, reflect or represent numerical information
0: this this is fascinating this um, just a few questions on, on on this Corbinium when it comes to the um, addition and subtraction did do fingers naturally become less useful whenever we're dealing with numbers greater than 10? Do you, do you find that students who've been used to doing addition and subtraction on their fingers just abandon them altogether when the numbers get a bit bigger or is there a natural transition from fingers to to another method for dealing with numbers with greater magnitude?
1: Yeah, so this is this was one actually this was one of the of the biggest fears of of the colleagues from math education that mm. if we train children explicitly on using their fingers that then they will somehow stick to to their fingers longer or will be be bound to them. Their representation of number will be bound to this very concrete physical experiences and and they have problems in in, uh, acquiring more abstract representations of number which are certainly necessary for for two-digit numbers because fingers are not a tool working well um, for for two-digit numbers or three-digit numbers or something. Yeah? Um, this is this case. Even, even though the, there are specific ways of, of uh, using your fingers in for calculations up to 1,000, for instance. But this is this is something different. So it's no longer one finger for each number. It's much more complicated. But yes. there are there are ideas for them to do so. Um, but. So, so we got this question when we advertised the study, and we, we, I have been to a lot of um, evenings, meeting a lot of parents um, yeah. <laughs> to 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 advertise the study and to to ask them uh, to allow their their children to to participate. Um, and this was a very prominent question. And what I said was, um, I do not think that this will be a problem because children are clever enough. To um, uh, to to recognize when a specific strategy is becoming too effortful and is no mm-hmm. longer useful when there is a, an easier way of doing something, children um, children will do it the easier way. Um, and the, this the, I, I I like I observe this very often in my my own children that they do so. Um, and luckily. In the end, this turned out to be the case. Yeah. So after the uh, post, after the follow-up test in the middle of second grade, um, when when uh, the number range is extended to to 100 in, in Germany, we asked teachers whether they um, had the experience that um, it took children longer um, to get away from fingers, from mm. from 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 this f- concrete representations, and say they said no. They did not have the impression that um, children were bound to fingers more than they were bound to tokens
0: or something else. That, that's, it's fascinating, this. Um, another question that I had was, you, I don't know what it's like um, in different countries where, where you, you, you've observed this, but I know certainly in England uh, for, for primary school students, Um, manipulatives and physical objects um, are are highly prominent and and one that's particularly used are are counters but both positive number counters and also on the flip side they'll have negative numbers and this this, this is incredibly useful for introducing students to the concept of negative numbers and also um, addition and subtraction with negative numbers and so on. I wonder is, is there an argument that like something like sticking to counters means that you can then transition easily into for example negative numbers or different areas of mathematics whereas again fingers are are they quite limited that they're good for counting for kind of cardinality and also good for for simple addition and subtraction but they don't have that versatility that something like a counter or another physical manipulative might have is is that a concern or, or not?
1: I think I I don't think it's a concern, but you're certainly right that um fingers are limited. Yeah. So um that there are specific um representations of numbers um or concepts of numbers that can be easily conveyed using fingers and others just cannot be done. Yeah. And therefore um I think I, I, I think that this is not a this is in some case, in some some sense it is a disadvantage of numbers, but it is, in in my opinion, um, it is very hard to find a a tool, a, um, yeah, how do you say, instructional approach that covers everything. And um, my my argument um, would be at this point that using fingers seems to be something very natural. Right? So um, there is basically, um, there are reports from all over the world that children start using their fingers for counting and initial calculations without any instruction to do so. So they will just simply do it. And this is why I would say that, okay, let's make use of this if it's possible. And of course, it is not useful for any mathematical concept, like you said, negative numbers or something. Um, but it is a very natural approach to grasping numbers, also in the, in the beginning. Right?
0: And again, just, just moving, moving forward, is there, is there any evidence or have you had any experience that once students get a bit older, they, they can use fingers for any other areas of mathematics? Do they have any role when it comes to algebra or any geometry or anything like that? Or is it, is it kind of limited to those those foundational introductions to number? I, yeah, I, I would
1: say it is quite limited to the foundations. So at least in the sense that that we used it, so mm. like um, stretching out one finger for each number. And stuff. yes, um, there are um, there are recent approaches, not not only not not specific with numbers, but using this idea of embodied experiences to ground more abstract mathematical concepts on. Um, so um, I think there is certainly research into this direction, um, but not specifically bound to things.
0: I see. I see. And you mentioned um, earlier on that perhaps um, parents might be uh, kind of question or if I if I encourage my student to my child to use fingers, that they may get bound to them and so on and so forth. And do you find the, in, that, that that's also a concern for for teachers, that that teachers are. Are, are more reluctant to use this the approach of fingers because they see it as kind of babyish and so on. Or are our teachers in your experience quite willing to to embrace fingers as as they would any other physical manipulative? I think some in, in, in my
1: experience from from this training study that we did it that was that it differs a lot. Mm. So there are certainly teachers um, who are very strict in saying no. Um, I do not want this uh, to do. I want my students to do this, and um, others are very open and said, "Okay." Um, I my experience is that I cannot forbid this anyway because I when I tell them not to do it openly, then they sit on their hands to do it <laughs> secretly in a sense, and therefore it is, yeah. So this is this is certainly a a weakness in, in, in our study that basically we, we could not randomize finger use. Yes. We had, we, had to need, we needed the teachers to do it or to do it not. And therefore, um, um, in, in, in our training group, uh, of course, there were teachers which did not uh, say, no, they do not want it uh, to, to to take place in their class. Um, but yeah, so I think there are, at least in my experience, some teachers are very open to this. They are very interested in learning more about this, and others are very reluctant, as you said.
0: Um, but yeah, it's it's really interesting. This um a more kind of general question now. Um I I, I am I've openly admitted this on the podcast before that. I'm not particularly experienced when it comes to using physical manipulatives in the classroom whether it be counters whether it be fingers or whatever it is my fear has always been as you alluded to before this how do we move students on how do we move them away from the manipulative and and so on well what's been your experience there you mentioned previously that that students themselves kind of realize when something's more effort than another approach they'll naturally move on to the other approach Do do you think that that is the answer that actually we're fine to use these these whether it be fingers or counters because students will naturally move away from them or does there need to be a definite point where that the teacher takes control and says okay now we're going to move on to a different approach a more abstract approach and, and so on what what's what's your experience there i i think that this transition is
1: more or less taking place fluently yeah so mm-hmm. um at least my, my my son is now he's in second grade and um he he's um uh like uh, they extending the, the, the number range to 100. And, and he was, in the beginning, he was like, oh, dad, and 100, this is two, <laughs> so big. And, and, and how, how will I grasp it? And how, how will I make this But, but that, what they did at school was like, they introduced the, the place value system and the tens and they're counting on ten, by, by tens. So to, to have this reference points and then fill in the slots and stuff like this. And he used his fingers quite a lot in the, in, in, in the beginning. But so we we never said no you're not allowed to do it, but I also didn't like specifically foster it in the mm-hmm. sense that I said so you must do it because it is helpful and he I think he experienced it to be helpful. Um, but rec- recently it was like we were doing homework together and he did, and he did some calculations and I was like, you, you're not using your fingers anymore and um, he was yeah no you know it's easier. Doing it another way, yes. <laughs> and yes. and this, of, co- of course, this is not empirical evidence from a study from a well-controlled <laughs> study. So this is just like my, my personal experience with this one child, and this needs to be taken into account when when interpreting this. this. But I'm 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 quite sure that the majority of children will do so. And the the, the way two-digit numbers are introduced in second grade and all these new concepts and stuff. So it is done in a way by using concrete um, um manipulatives with like 100 plates um 10 sticks for instance and then uh, unit blocks um and this this is this i think this this helps children a lot moving on yeah? so mm. it's something new and something for which some older um stuff that they used doesn't work anymore right so it, it is in a sense, they also switched. So, as I said in the beginning, they used single tokens in in first grade. So they had the, this area of five and five, in which they in, 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 uh, inserted single um, tokens. And and now what they what they do with the two digit numbers, they have like lines of tokens, tens, yes, and tens, tens blocks. And this is something, yeah. So it's you could say it's two hands, yeah. Of course, yes. But yes. but but this this doesn't really work, right? Mm-hmm. So say you have two hands, four hands, six yeah. hands. No, this. <laughs> So this 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 doesn't really work. But, but but sometimes what we had some discussions with teachers that that they then said okay, but look you you know um there I have this pupil in third grade and he or she, she is still counting on on, on her or her, his fingers. Yeah. Um. But we we was like okay yeah, but this is not uh, evidence for like using fingers in first grade is detrimental mm. later on it may be the only way possible for this child to solve the task right yes so it's it's more it's a symptom of something and it's not the 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 origin or the reason um for 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 the
0: problem that's interesting um where would you like to take this research next corbinian have you done all there is to do with fingers or is there is there more potential there
1: yeah, as I said in the beginning, we also did some some um, in this I, making use of this idea of embodied um, uh, representations, embodied mm. um, and embodied experiences for number learning. We also did research using whole body movements, um, oh, for for instance, like um, taping three meters of number line onto the ground and um, asking children to walk from zero to sixty five or something to to give them. Uh, a, a physical experience uh, in the sense that for larger numbers they need to walk further, yes. Um, which is also like making use of this embodied embodiment idea. Um, this also worked yeah? so children uh, learned more or benefited from this embodied uh, training condition in which they walked along the number line. Um, we used the dance mats, for instance, uh, where they had to jump left and right uh, to decide whether the number was smaller or larger than a number one, uh, another one. And we also programmed um, a, we used a multi-touch table um, onto which children could place manipulatives like blocks and rods. And these were recognized by the by the system. Um, and so we we uh, uh, Trained children on which two numbers, putting together, uh, add up to ten. Yeah, um, and they had to place these numbers uh, or rot on the on the multi-touch table. The multi-touch table recognized that it was three and seven, and it made up. It added up to ten, and said, "Yeah, wonderful, you did it." And or it's three and six, and they said, "Yeah, try again, please." <laughs> Something like this. So we, we try to play around a little bit with this embodied ideas and, and using the body um physical experiences for number learning and this is certainly something that i want to pursue in the future right um, um because it, i think i like the idea that our body helps us in in, in grasping uh, abstract concepts such as number
0: and um, and um, with my kind of uh hat on as a as a secondary school maths teacher and um, one thing I, i've experimented with in the past is i'm just trying to think where, where i've tried to make use of the body and so on for, for for teaching mathematics certainly when it comes to doing kind of geometry topics like angles or, yeah. or loci and construction loci in particular where we're thinking of um if you have a student stood in the center and we want all the all the student all the points that are exactly three meters away from that student, yeah. then the, the students can visualize that it's in a circle if they're, they're stood forming the circle and so on. But also in terms of... Um, shapes of graphs like you have a thing called graph aerobics where you yeah. can do all the transformations of graphs and the kids have got their arms out doing y equals x and then they jump up when it's y equals x plus one and so on do you think there's the scope for older students for more complex mathematical ideas that this idea of embodiment could be could be potentially effective
1: yes definitely yeah so um I think as I said there there is some also some theoretical thinking at the moment um on on how this embodiment idea can be not not transfer, transformed but how, how 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 does it account um for uh, this acquisition of more abstract mathematical more complex mathematical um things and I think the the the, the general idea behind this is that it is no, that it's, um, for for more complex mathematical concepts, it is not that concrete as it is with fingers and cardinalities or the very basic stuff. It is more that it's a more, how can you say so, a more abstract way of embodiment in the sense mm. that, um, the, that you have a lot of experience, so as you described it, um so you you can you make something experienceable for students um in different ways and um physical experiences are one way of um making students aware of something and every all these different experiences being it very concrete by standing at different positions in the room um to to show that um you that we all are the, uh, away from the center of the circle, <laughs> the same distance. Um, something or watching this, uh, observing this on a sheet of paper or drawing it by yourself. All these different experiences—they are combined in something called um, an event code or event file. And like, whenever then you have to to access this event file, this 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 concept um, for a circle, for instance. Then you all these experiences that are bound to this uh, this this concept by experiencing it physically, visually, audibly, auditive what or whatever, um, they help you accessing it. The more um, of these experiences you can activate in a certain a situation, the easier you can get access to the to the to the concept. And this is a more abstract idea of embodiment. It's no longer there is the thumb for one, the index finger for two, and so on. But it is more like we um, put together different experiences of the world, including our bodily experiences, our physical experiences. And we, we, we put this together into yeah an event code, an event file for a certain concept. And then... Yeah, Activating all these different features of this code will finally make it easier for us um, to to access
0: it. This is ab- absolutely it's absolutely fascinating. This, and um, I, I don't know if this is relevant, but again, it's just a thought that that occurred to me. Then I think, and I've spoke about this on the podcast before. A mistake I made for many many years in my teaching was. I try to make experiences memorable for, for my students and it may be like, okay, we're going to go outside of the classroom to, to try and get our heads around this idea mm-hmm. or we're going to try, you know, some physical movement and so on. But I think the mistake I made was that, the experience became memorable for the students, but not the mathematics, if that makes sense. So they, they remembered, oh, we went out the classroom, yeah. <laughs> but they can't remember why we did it or what the idea was. So yeah. is, is there a danger there that we, we we try and give these students these different experiences, but actually what they're thinking about isn't the mathematics, but the experience itself. Do, do, does that make any sense? Yeah, I, I think
1: that um, this is, um, how do you say this? So I don't think that this is a problem for this very basic stuff fingers and numbers right? mm, yes. once. So because there is the the association is that clear and and yes. and, and, and easy to grasp. Um, but you are certainly right that for, um, for, for 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 more complex or more abstract mathematical concepts, um, the the what, when within these theoretical idea of the features contributing to an event file, certainly going out the classroom is also a feature that, that, yes. that it is bound yes. to this this concept yes. and, and and we know there is research back from the 1960s and stuff um, showing that um, you that when when you build a memory then that the situation in which you experience this first will be um, will be bound to this memory and mm. that you will be that it will be easier for you um, to to um, memorize uh, the certain fact or whatever when you are in a very similar situation. Um, for a very famous experience, for instance, is one with uh, divers. Yeah? So they had to um, learn a list of words underwater and then recall it outside the water. And it was harder for them to do <laughs> this outside the water than when they had to recall yes. it under the water as well. Yeah. And so, and this is like, then this is somehow the, 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 the challenge that the features that we associate with the, the, the concept that we want to convey, they need to be like associated to the concept we make. This is the challenge, yeah. Yes. Now, not to something broad yeah, or to the situation as a whole, but making sure that it is associated to the concept we want to teach. And this gets harder in my view. Um, the, the more abstract, the more complex the the mathematical, the mathematical concept gets.
0: Yeah, I, I completely agree. And and that brings me very nicely on to just one other kind of main area I just wanted to talk to you about, if that's okay, Corbinian. And that is, um, I know from um, so a document that Colin Foster sent me through where it had um, the bios of all the guests that I'm going to be speaking to in their areas of interest. The one area of interest of yours is, um, is game-based apps. Um, yeah. And what I'm interested there in is, is this similar problem that um, I know from experience with working with students and also um, my little boy who started, he, he's up, he's only 20 months, but already he can unlock my phone and all sorts, and he's pressing buttons left, right, and center. Yeah. That How do we again get away from this problem that... It's actually the the fun of the game and the experience of the game that becomes memorable, as aside from the the thing that the game's trying to teach. Because it seems to me like it's 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 quite a related problem to something we've been discussing there. So does, does that is that a problem that, that that is 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 something that you you often think about and encountering? And what are your thoughts on it?
1: So I think it can be a problem, um, um, but I think it, there are also ways to to circumvent this. Mm. Um, for instance, you, you, it is well possible. I think we, 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 we gave an example for, for a game that, that, uh, that did this. Is You can make um, the, the numerical task um, that you want to teach or the, the numerical content that you want to teach, you can make it the, the, the primary game mechanic of a, of a game. Yes. Yeah. So, and if if this this is this has a specific name in in, in game uh, development that I cannot cannot remember at the moment, intrinsic something. Um, and this, if 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 you succeed to do so, that then then there is an there is the, the the perfect association of doing the number task and uh, achieving the goal of the game. Being successful in the game, and so for instance, we we, we did a game. Um, it was uh, like um, you had to to find gold coins that uh, a goblin stole from Zeus and um, was uh, hiding while uh, on on while, while running away, um, and um, so the and you had to dig them out on the way. And um, the way was a number line, uh, basically running from zero to. It was for fractions, though so it was one. And the and there was a fraction at the top of the of the screen showing the position of the number and uh, of the of the gold coin. And so yes. you had to move an avatar on the number line to the correct position for this fraction and then dig out the coin. And the I goal the, the goal was um, uh, to to yeah to achieve as many points as possible to dig out uh, the the coins at the correct positions and stuff like this and they were like got a lot of game elements like helpful agents and whatever um, but in this in this in this game so the idea was we wanted to 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 instruct children or we wanted to train the 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 magnitude understanding for fractions yeah so where on the number line from zero to one goes one third and stuff like mm. this, uh, and this is was exactly what they had to do to solve the game, to be successful in the game. And then this, I think, it's it's a nice example. There are others around, yeah. So um, that uh, you can associate the number task that you want to train with the goal of the game of a game, um, and if this is possible, then I think it is very, very easy to argue that this. Um, that that it's not a it's not chocolate covered broccoli. Yeah, <laughs> that's
0: the... <laughs> Yeah, you you're right. That, that chocolate covered broccoli is a much better way of putting it than, than I was about to. I, I I much prefer that. It's yeah because my my fear is, and again, this isn't just game based apps. This is this is um, activities uh, in the maths classroom and so on. It's it's when you you cover up the mathematics in some bright shiny covering, and it's 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 the bright shiny covering that students think about and attend to and 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 remember and it's it's for me it's always been about trying to make sure that actually mathematics is at the heart of it and that that bright shiny covering will hopefully direct attention towards the maths and may may provide a bit of extrinsic motivation yeah. and so on. But as soon as you get in away from the maths itself, then there's a real danger that it's, it's perhaps not going to be as effective um, as it can be. Uh, is it in in your experience do do, do quite a few of these the, the apps that you see that are aimed at mathematics do they do they fall victim of, of this or or generally do, do game developers seem to have got their heads round that, that that mathematics does need to be at the heart of things?
1: I think there are examples for both. So um, there are very good games that work pretty well and that they they also keep like, um, um, you can, they are argued and they are based on theories of numerical development. They consider these theories and and they work pretty well, I think. Um, But of course, on the other hand, there are a lot of games that claim to train or teach mathematics or or number or whatever. um, And they, they, they they do not have this this they are not evaluated empirically they do not have the background the theoretical background um, in, in numerical cognition and stuff and but this is um I think this is the the, the challenge for this is that you need to uh, who you need to think of okay who is who is developing these games yeah usually it's not researchers from numerical cognition or mathematical mm-hmm. cognition uh, with a background in in, in these uh, or without expertise on this um, it is. Computer scientists. Yeah. And what and and what they do is they they do their best, right? They they think it it should be that way for whatever reason and therefore they do it like this. And I think you cannot like how do you say this? Um, you cannot be mad with them or angry Mm -hmm. on them because they, they do what they can do and they focus on the game because and, and the, the, how do you implement it the best way, how to make it look nice, and all these, this is their expertise. Right? And what, what we really, really need is interdisciplinary research on yes. this. Yeah? To, we, we need to to join forces, um, the psychologists with the background on the microcognition and mathematical development and stuff, with the guys um, developing games. Because I'm so... There, there, there are these games which look really, really nice from computer scientists, programmers, companies, but which fail on the on the numerical content, on the on the theoretical background. But there are also these games developed by by uh, by researchers, yeah? which fail on aesthetics, on graphics yes. Yes. and stuff. And I'm certain I'm, I'm sure you know, you also know these games. And and so so. With, with all the, that's nice looking games around. So I don't think that you can win anything with these, <laughs> like, not really games. Yes. <laughs> but yes. they, they adhere to the, to the theoretical background and stuff. That's nice. Yeah. But we need to combine this in a way. This is, this is my, my, my idea, right? We need to make sure that the numerical content is, is, is fine, is adhered to or is reflected in, a, in the right way. Um, but also that it really looks like a game you know, in, in, in in these in these days uh, because then because I, we also had this so we we tried out some some colleagues from from for, uh, from another university and they hit a game and they they did quite a nice job uh, to implement like counting stuff in this and I had my sons trying it out and they was like, yeah so that when does it go on when <laughs> when <laughs> When's when something more happening here in, the, in, this, in this game? So, so, yeah, so because they, they, they know from, from other games with yes. with no educational intention that there is always something happening and stuff like yes. this. And this is what they also expect from these serious games or games. <laughs> and, yeah, so this is what you need to deal with. <laughs>
0: that's really that's really funny i like that um just a final question for me on in terms of the games um do, do you think there's a danger and I, I often hear this and it's 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 always from people who are either not teachers or not involved in in education research and the argument goes something like this that students are bored at school they they maybe don't put effort in in mathematics and yet they'll go home and they'll they'll play on the xbox or the playstation for, for three or four hours that can engage them so all mathematics needs to be taught through games because that's what students like. Now, I often hear that argument that it somehow we're failing students in terms of their experience in the classroom because it's not like the game environment that they're used to. Um, do you do you hear that argument? And, and uh, what's your response to it, Corbinian?
1: Yeah, uh, this, is a, this is a difficult question, I think, mm. um, because we hear this argument. so one 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 way for me out of this is that i'm usually focusing on on, on early years in primary schools so yes. this is not that prevalent yes. um, and and it's, it's it's easier to to like um Reflect or consider this, these early um, numerical skills in in, in games or something or using fingers. Yeah. So to make it, uh, experienceable, um, than, than it is for, for more complex math. Um, but personally, then this is not based on any empirical research that I did. It's just my, my personal opinion is that, um, you cannot have games for everything. Because if if we try to teach everything using games, then it is as boring as doing anything without games. Yes. Yeah. So you will be fed up at some point um, <laughs> with, with this uh, with 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 this gaming approach. And so my what what we usually try is and that we we also so we, we we try to to use this embodiment idea not not only for math but also for computer what's called computational thinking which is like the um um cognitive skill underlying programming skills in, in, in children and we also we developed a course um to to teach um, children computational thinking and we, we try, we, we try to put some embodiment stuff in this as well to have like unplugged, um, experience, uh, games that they, that they can play. Like, um, you can put life size, size board games on which they can move around physically with their whole body and stuff. Um, but we use this as, as an introduction or as an add-on. To something that needs to be taught, like yeah, with with the teacher um, mm-hmm. and then and, and using a whiteboard or, or, or a blackboard or whatever. So I think it the, the challenge is to get the combination right. Yes. Yeah. Um, between a game based in, introduction maybe, or um, we also we tried out one of our games. We tried it out in a um, in a, in a large-scale study in, in, in Germany with um, a few thousand students, um, and it was on, on fractions, and it worked really well for, for some students, but it did not work at all f- at all for others. Right? So mm. there were we, we got phone calls from teachers even before we started the training sessions saying, "What do I do with those children who already played through the game?" <laughs> yes <laughs> and, and and then the, we, we, there were also there were other children that hardly did what we expected them to do right so we asked them to do 5 minutes of tra- of, of of playing and they did 4 minutes and 50 seconds um yeah so games are not
0: the solution to everything I think Fantastic, brilliant answer. And um, just before we move on to your reflections, and then end with your big three, was there anything else from your areas of research, either whether it be embodiment or games, that you just wanted to make listeners aware of, Corbinian?
1: No, not nothing in particular. I think we I, we had a great uh, conversation, and I think we touched on a, a lot of topics that uh, I I was intended to to bring up, but also you you ask a lot more than I was expecting.
0: But I like it. I think. Oh, that's good. <laughs> that's good. Well, just a couple more questions from me. Uh, just in terms of a, a reflection, just generally, um, what's an example of something important that you've changed your mind about? Um,
1: I was, um, a couple of years ago, I was really fascinating, fascinated by, uh, by the idea of Making neuroscientific research, um, of bringing evidence from neuroscientific research into the classroom quite directly by hmm. saying, okay, we know these areas of the brain are involved in that. And we know that um, by doing this and that, we can like stimulate these, these areas. And so let's go to the classroom and do this. <laughs> and <laughs> so, um, I was taught a lesson, um, by, by my own research and by different experiences that it's, again, it is interdisciplinary research that we need. We need to close collaboration of neuroscientists, psychologists, educational psychologists, but also, and this is probably the most, the most um, obvious, the, the the biggest thing that, that I have learned is that it is so important to work together, to collaborate with, with teachers, with educational practitioners, with those who are at the front each day, um, with our children and, um, to talk to them, to ask them for their experiences, to, to ask them for what do you need from us, right? Because I learned that, um, so, Through this project with the, uh, with um, the university of education that I mentioned in the beginning, I am now collaborating a lot more with colleagues from math education and stuff. And, and this helped me so much understanding that these well controlled experiments that we do, these are nice. That's, that's just necessary to prove that something works or not. But this is quite far away from, from everyday life of a teacher um, and that we need to bring this together much more than we do so far um, and ask them okay what 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 are the interesting questions for you um, and and look then do we already have an answer for these questions or can can we do a study uh, uh, to answer these questions or can we Break down the question in the sense that it is, it maybe is too big in the beginning, and we need to say, okay, yeah, we can, this part can be answered empirically, but this, we need to see what the first study tells us. And this is what, what, what I learned and what more and more fascinates me working together with, with these, with teachers, with educational practitioners to, to learn more and to not like the, the, my biggest fear in some way is to end as one of these academics in the ivory tower of <laughs> academic research. And I think you, you can have a whole career <laughs> yes, in, in, in doing so. But this is, yeah, I, I want to see my research applied in one way or the other. And this, this is only possible by collaborating.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. And again, that's one thing I, I love about the work Loughborough is doing here. It's, yep. It seems very much teacher centered and, and open to feedback and suggestions and making real impact in the classroom. Um, that's fantastic. Well, to wrap things up, let me hand over to you for your big three. So what three, either websites, blog posts or books or whatever you like, would you recommend our listeners check out? And I'll put links to these in the show notes page.
1: Yeah. So um, first of all, as regards numerical cognition, I think there are two books um, which might which might be interesting. One is by uh, it's called The Number Sense by Stanislas Dehaene, um, and it describes yeah how how numerical cognition works in a, in a, in a quite a popular but a scientifically sound way. Um, the, the second book is. Doing pretty much the same from from a slightly different perspective. So Stanislas Lebihane is a neuroscientist and he's pretty much coming from from the neuro stuff uh, side um, for numerical cognition. And there is this other book uh, it's called *The Mathematical Brain* by um, Brian Butterworth, um, a colleague from from London. Um, and it also gives an an, an introduction into numerical cognition. It is so it is more how do you say this I, I I like the the mathematical brain a bit more tiny bit more because it is, it is more specifically um, for it is also focusing on this embodiment stuff more mm. and then the finger stuff is is in there more uh, more 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 interesting in, in my opinion but this is personal uh, opinion. Um. yeah then there is a uh, a webpage called uh, the learning scientists.org which I really find useful um because it like it is it it comes with the intention of translating research from cognitive psychology cognitive science um, to 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 teachers to 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 get this transition this this transfer done, and I I like it really, really very quite quite a lot. Uh, and finally, there is a book by David Willingham. It's called Why Students Don't Like School, I think.
0: Oh yes, uh, Dan Willingham. Yeah it's, yeah, it's a great book. Um, and, and
1: he he's trying. Pretty much the same as this uh, this homepage I was referring to, um, trying to to make cognitive research accessible um, to teachers. And of course, this always comes with like we need to be short on this and that and stuff like this. But I think the, the book does a good, a very good job in in in, in presenting um, um, uh, empirical uh, cognitive research that is interesting and also like saying. Why it might be interesting to teach us. Um, and maybe this is, this is the biggest challenge, not, not only to, to present research in a, in a, in a more popular way than it's done in the scientific articles, but also say why, why it is interesting to, to know this.
0: Absolutely, I mean that that book cha- No exaggeration to say it changed my life. Reading that, that that really got me engaged in research. And I see for, on Twitter that uh, Dan Willingham is currently working on a sequel to it as well. Yeah. So that be uh, that will be absolutely fascinating when that comes out. Well, Corbinin, um, this has been an absolute pleasure. This we, we've started with fingers and we've moved on to game-based apps. It's been, yeah, fascinating, fascinating conversation. Two areas that we've never discussed on this podcast before. So I know this will be of great interest to listeners. So thank you so much for your time today. It's been a pleasure to speak to you. Thank you very much. It's my
1: pleasure to that you, that you that you invited me to, to this podcast. Thanks very much.
0: So there you have it. There was my interview with Corbinian. I really hope you enjoyed that one and got as much out of it as I did. Again, I I, I say this every single time in these takeaways in this Loughborough series, but I'm loving this because I'm able to speak about things in depth that are kind of at the fringes of some of the teacher based episodes and teacher based interviews that I do. And it's just brilliant to speak to people who've, who've studied this in great depth and have some incredible insights, and then try and tease out what the implications are for classroom teachers. So, just a few things uh, I want to mention in the takeaway here. The first is obviously the role of fingers. I, I found that absolutely fascinating. I'd come across this before, and um, longtime listeners will remember I interviewed Jeremy Hodgen uh, from King's College London um, about this, and he mentioned manipulatives and fingers in particular. But I'd not thought about this since. And I guess since that conversation, I've been thinking a fair bit about manipulatives, and again, regular listeners will know that that the use of manipulatives is very much a weak area, one of many weak areas of, of my teaching and understanding. But it was fascinating the distinction Corbinian made between fingers and things like counters. And in the sense that fingers, because they're part of your body, they're they're somehow kind of treated differently by the person. The people are more familiar with them, obviously, because you're you're more used to them and so on. So perhaps more comfortable using them. And again, it's really interesting the fact that, and I'm so so guilty of this, and it's something that I'm I'm trying to trying to put right. That if I saw a child counting with their fingers, I'd be I'd be trying to kind of move them away from that, move them on to to. Probably a more efficient calculation strategy, maybe even a more abstract way of, of calculating a problem. But of course, just like manipulatives as a whole, um, fingers—it isn't necessarily a sign of mathematical weakness. It could be a really efficient way of using it. And and the thing is, kids are always going to have their fingers with them, whether it's in exams or whatever. So it seems smart if you're going to be if you're going to be picking any manipulative to use, any physical object, then let's pick something that you've always got with you to to, to make work. And yeah, it was, it was fascinating to hear about the study, just how, how significant it seemed to be on, on students on uh, levels of mathematical understanding and achievement, those that had been trained and taught and introduced to, to use fingers were. And um, the, the wider point, again, about manipulatives, this is something I, I still need to understand more of. It, it's really annoying. Like the time I'm getting into manipulatives is the time we're really struggling to use physical manipulatives, of course, with the current classroom restrictions. But again, I will, I will persist on this. I still remember the fact that the irony that, that Joe Morgan and I won a quiz competition at uh, the BCME Uh, conference, and the first prize for winning the quiz was a box of manipulatives, so I've got them behind me on my bookshelf here, but, uh, yeah, very much a weak area of mine. And finally, I wanted to just spend the longest amount of time on this takeaway, talking about uh, game-based apps, because I thought this was really interesting. I love Corbinian's phrase, uh, to avoid chocolate-covered broccoli. And that very much chimes with with my reading of uh, Dan Willingham, who makes the point memories the residue of thought what students think about is what they're likely to remember. And if this the chocolate that covers the (laughs) the broccoli is the thing that students latch onto, then it's that that they're going to remember. And as we talked about, if we've got a game where potentially unpalatable maths is wrapped up in a bright, shiny, glossy coating. And it's that which the students focus on and remember, not the mathematics that's at the heart of it, then they're not, they're potentially not gonna, they're not gonna learn very much or they're gonna remember very little. And that that transfers too, as well, into the classroom. Whenever I think about some of the activities I used to do with my students, whether it's uh, cutting and sticking going on or something with Kagan structures and all this kind of stuff, quiz, quiz share and all this. The problem was it was it was wrapping up some impalatable maths, potentially impalatable maths, in some bright shiny covering, and and that's that's really problematic. And I, and I really think about that now. Whenever I'm planning, I, I go back to Willingham. I think when I'm do when my students are doing this activity, when they're doing this task, what are they likely to be thinking about? And if it's not the mathematics at the heart of it, then I think I'm going really, to really have to have second thoughts about my choices there, and I'm going to have to rework it so that maths is at the forefront of their mind. But, and I think it's quite a big but, um, I, I I go back to my conversation I had with Peps McRae recently on the podcast about motivation. And, this, and the thing that extrinsic motivation in the short term may be potentially a good thing to develop long-term intrinsic motivation. And this is where rewards come into play or even sanctions. Because if you can use rewards or sanctions to kind of kickstart a certain type of behavior... And that type of behavior then becomes motivating, and you get into this virtuous cycle where kids do well, they're motivated, they keep going, and so on and so forth. And you may just need that kind of kickstart, that short term boost, whether it's a reward or a sanction, to get kids into this type of behavior. So then I started thinking, having spoken to Corbinium and thinking about these game based apps, whether you may be of that kind of bright, shiny, that covering, that 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 chocolate coating, is that that extrinsic motivation, that short term thing to kickstart that behaviour, is that kind of the reward that people get for putting the time in, doing the mathematics, and maybe it is. But I think to be long term sustaining, it goes back to again what, what we spoke about with Peps. Success is the key to it, and I think that's where um, a lot of these the the games, whether it's you know Xbox, PS five, or whatever it is, where they where they're really where they really tap into a students' motivation is because they drip feed success. There's plenty of failure built in there, but there's always success, many achievements, badges, and so on and so forth. And then you start thinking, well, then do I make my lessons like that? But as we spoke about, it's it, it's it's not that straightforward. It's it, the, the it's really hard to tread the line between. Getting things that are motivating, but motivating for the right reason with mathematics at the heart of it. And I think this is a this is a tension that I think about lots now in terms of planning. I want my students to be happy. I want them to enjoy what they're doing. I want them if there is something, you know, an an area of mathematics that's potentially a little bit dull. And I don't think there's any getting aside from the fact that students need to practice. They need to do a lot of practice of of pretty much all mathematics to get good at it. How do we motivate them to keep going with that practice? And how do we ensure that that motivation doesn't trickle over into becoming chocolate-covered broccoli so that the focus becomes on the chocolate? And I think this is really, really, really difficult. And again, I I know I sound like a broken record here, but I I go back to Willingham. I want the mathematics to be at the heart of it. I want the maths to be ultimately the thing that motivates them. And finally, this this goes back to what we were saying with Pep's. When when Pep's spoke about his five core drivers of motivation, number one on that list was success. So if students are feeling good about themselves, feeling good about their mathematics, they're starting to see that the more time they put in, the more successful they're being at the maths, not the the chocolate coating, then I think that's when we get into this virtuous cycle, this intrinsic motivation starts to kick in anyway I've rambled on far too long there and once again I I just thought this was a really really fascinating conversation I'm so lucky uh, to be doing this series and of course we've got five more to go and there's some absolute crackers coming if you thought fingers was a bit weird wait till you hear about the counting chicken which is coming up fairly soon Anyway, all that remains me to, uh, to do is thank my wonderful guest, Corbinian, for giving up his time to speak to me today. Uh, Colin Foster for helping me put together this series. PodcastThemes.com for the lovely jazzy music that you've heard throughout the show. And you, my lovely loyal listeners, for keeping on tuning in. I really hope you're enjoying this, uh, this research and action series. I'm certainly enjoying recording them, thinking about them, and producing these episodes. Anyway, you take care of yourselves. Bye for now.